Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia was about 30 miles east of Sardis. What once was the city of brotherly love is today known as Al-Shahir. Like Sardis, it was also badly damaged in the earthquake of AD 17 and received significant rebuilding help from Emperor Trajan. The city also seems to have had warm relationships with emperors Caligula and Verpassian in the years before Revelation was written. The area was a grape-growing region, and Dionysus was the principal deity, the god, to quote Wikipedia, of the grape harvest, winemaking, and wine, of fertility, ritual madness, religious ecstasy, festivity, and theater. Jesus introduces himself to the church here a bit differently than the other churches in that the description of him doesn't nearly neatly match one of the descriptions of chapter 1. There are some parallels, though. Holy and true brings to mind the faithful witness of chapter 1, especially if we take true as truthful, reliable. And there was a reference to keys in chapter 1, but here they are the keys of David. This is a fascinating epithet, and it's worth looking at. The language here is nearly a verbatim quote from Isaiah 22, where Isaiah prophesies that a servant of King Hezekiah, by the name of Eliakim, would be promoted to hold the keys of David, meaning effectively he'd be in charge of all business coming in and out of Hezekiah's palace, he being a descendant of the great king, David. Essentially, though he wasn't the king, he'd have access but here it is Jesus, the ultimate David, who is king of kings, who holds the keys of David. Access to the kingdom is Jesus' business and in Jesus' hands alone. His decisions are final. There is no higher authority to go to. As with many of the cities, Jesus knows that it works. But he interrupts the thought to tell them he's placed a door before them. It's open and no one can shut it. It fits the keys metaphor and it's most likely to be understood as a door of access to the king, a door of salvation. It is open for this church, and it cannot be closed on them. It's a promising statement. Jesus knows that their power is limited. Probably it means that they are small or otherwise weak. But regardless, they stood strong. They kept his word, meaning they obeyed Jesus' gospel. They didn't deny him meaning they had had opportunities to, probably from local persecution. They stood strong. 
we get a sense of the direction of that persecution in the next line. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. It seems like the persecution that the Philadelphian Christians were facing was coming from the local Jewish community. But these words are harsh. What is Jesus saying? Well, the local Jewish community was not composed of Jews. How could that be? In short, since these individuals rejected the promised Davidic king, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, they actually were rejecting the true faith of Israel. They were apostatizing from the true faith because they had failed to recognize the one God had sent and instead rejected God's word. Like the rest of the world that had rejected Jesus, they too were under the power of Satan. To quote Paul in Romans 2 verse 29, A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is what Paul calls the righteousness that comes by faith. For Abraham, it was looking forward to the promised seed, the descendant who would bless the nations. For us, it is looking backward to that descendant, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God and Son of Man. But there is hope for these Jews in Philadelphia. They will come and bow down before the Christians' feet and they will learn that Jesus has loved them. This is maybe both hopeful and a bit foreboding. Would they know it by coming to knowledge of the truth or by rejecting the truth and being humbled on the day of judgment? But there are good reasons to think that this is an optimistic passage and a positive view is what's in focus. The Christian's witness will lead to many of the so-called Jews becoming true Jews, sharing in the faith of Abraham with their new Gentile brothers and sisters. Jesus then announces a trial is about to come on the whole world, but the Christians in Philadelphia would be spared. It's not that they won't experience these coming trials outwardly, but that they would be spiritually protected. These trials would not be their spiritual undoing, as they have held fast to Christ's word and example so far. They will continue to do so. They will, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, endure to the end. His coming is soon, perhaps not as the world counts. But for Christians, we know that we are in the last act. The rising action and the climax have already taken place. Jesus crucified for the sins of sinners and raised to new life, that we who repent and believe in him might live eternally. The trials of this world are mere falling action before Jesus brings the final resolution. He is coming soon, and we live in readied anticipation so that we do not allow this world to steal the glorious gift we possess. To the one who overcomes, Jesus says that believer will be a pillar in the heavenly temple of God. In essence, we who overcome will be permanently ensconced in the very presence of God, and we will be marked securely. It's as if our passport will read, Property of Yahweh, citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem, certified by Jesus, 
the Christ. So, Christian, hold fast. Endure to the end. Until next time.